Now those who had been scattered by persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus, Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to the Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of the people believed and turned to the Lord. News of this reached the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith, and a great number of people were brought to the Lord. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, and when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So for a whole year, Barnabas and Saul met with the church and taught great numbers of people. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch, and during this time, some prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, one of them named Agabus stood up and through the Spirit predicted that a severe famine would spread over the entire Roman world. This happened during the reign of Claudius. The disciples, as each one was able, decided to provide help for the brothers and sisters living in Judea. And this they did, giving their gifts to the elders by Barnabas and Saul. This is God's Word. You may be seated. Thank you for blessing us with your presence today as we, we think about uh, the past 60 years and uh, right now look forward to whatever time uh, God gives us to continue to be his church in San Antonio. And we want to, uh, uh, to use some of the text that Alan just read for us from Acts chapter 11 to, uh, to frame our thoughts this morning as, as we think about the gospel and the power of the gospel among people all over the world. And let's begin with a word of prayer. Father, it's such a precious thing to, to know that we're your children and that you have chosen us and that you have adopted us and have brought us close to you, Father, that, that your hand is upon us. Not, not just our heart, Father, but your whole hand around us and no one can snatch us from your hand. So tight is the relationship. And we're grateful, Father, for all of our friends who have come to be with us this morning as we think about what it has meant for us to be a church in this community for the past six decades. And Father, we, we are thankful for all the ways that you have empowered us and have opened up doors for ministry in this community. And we pray with all of our heart, in the name of Jesus, that you will do so even more so in the future. And that you will give us even greater opportunities to bring glory to you in this community in the time that you give us in this place. And Father, as we, we look at this text, our prayer is that you will give us eyes that see and ears that hear in order to discern it, Father, and to lay it upon our heart in such a way that it becomes a, a part of the way that we think and respond and live in this life. And we pray this with all of our heart in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may not know this, but I think that we have a 
world-class scholar when it comes to the Greco-Roman world in our midst as a part of our church family. Uh, Randy Thompson, as you know, is a, is a Latin teacher, uh, formerly at Churchill, now over at St. Mary's Hall. He and I get together on a very regular basis. And one of the things that we have done uh, for a number of weeks is to talk about uh, Greco-Roman cities and to talk about their significance. And Randy, being an, uh, an expert, I think, in the Latin world, has, has shed so much light in my understanding of, of what the ancient world was like in which the church plunged itself into by the leading of the Spirit. And this last Wednesday, uh, Randy made a statement that I want to share with you because I think it's, it's incredibly important, and it's one that I also hear lots of other people saying. People like Thomas Friedman, who has written a lot about globalization in the world. Randy said that in the modern world, we are now just catching up to Rome. The modern world is just now catching up to Rome. That just in the last 100 to 150 years, we are actually catching up in the world to where many of the cities were in the ancient Roman world. If you go back about 150 years, there were only four cities in the entire world that had a million or better in population. And what he and others mean by this is that what was happening in the Roman Empire is only now, centuries later, being experienced again in our modern world, a world of gigantic cities. And as you know, in the book of Acts, Antioch is hugely important and representative of the ancient cities in the Greco-Roman world and in the expansion of Christianity into the world. There's a, there's a really famous book. Many of you already know it. I've, I've recommended it to many of you. Written by Rodney Stark, who is a professor of church history, ancient church history, up the road at Baylor. He's written a book called The Rise of Christianity in which he, he talks a lot about what was happening in Antioch at the time of Acts 11. And there are two statements. I'll kind of summarize everything that he says in the book this way. Statement one about Antioch, understanding this ancient city, Antioch was a densely populated city. Now that sounds pretty cliche, and it is, especially in light of the fact that we in our modern world do not even have a clue as to what it meant to be densely populated the way that it was in the first century A.D., Many ancient cities were very small in terms of space. Antioch is no exception. Antioch was, uh, was founded on the Orontes River about 300 B.C. by one of Alexander the Great's uh, generals, a fellow by the name of Seleucus. And it was estimated that by the time that, that Paul and Barnabas in the first century rolls around, that Antioch has about 150,000 people in it. That doesn't sound like a whole lot of people. I mean, we've got tons of cities that size in the United States. Here's the difference. Antioch was two square miles. It was two square miles wide and one mile deep, which meant that there were 75,000 people living in every square mile, which meant if you looked at it in terms of acreage, there were 117 people per acre living in Antioch when the time that, that uh, the gospel arrived there in Acts chapter 11. Now, today in comparison, think about our great cities in America. Chicago has only 18.5 inhabitants per acre. Not 117. Chicago, as big as it is, 18.5 inhabitants per acre. San Francisco, 26, nearly 27 inhabitants per acre. What's the biggest city in the United States? New York City. Eight plus million people, right, in New York City. New York City has only 42 inhabitants per acre. Compare that to the 117 per acre in the time, the first century, in the time that Paul and Barnabas are arriving in Antioch. 
Anyone want to hazard a guess as to what the population density per acre, acre is in San Antonio? Four. 4.4 people live per acre here in San Antonio unless, unless you go into the very heart of the downtown area of San Antonio. You go to the 78207, which is the west side of 281 in the center of our town where you have nearly 12 people per acre. And then you go just to the zip code to the south of that, the 78225, and you have nearly 11 people per acre. Still... Very, very crowded by our standard of, of crowding today, but nothing like it was in Antioch with 117 per acre. And here's the other thing that we don't think about. When you go, when you go to a city like Rio de Janeiro, and, and I've been told, I've, I've not been able to find this fact, but I've been told by the missionaries in Rio de Janeiro that because of those high rises that you cannot get in certain parts of that major city, you cannot get all of the people that live in those high rises down on the street at the same time. That it is an incredibly dense city as well. But in the ancient world, they did not build that high. In New York City, in San Antonio, in Los Angeles, in Chicago, in San Francisco, those people are not spread out over a flat acre. They go up in the air. So the density is not, not that felt. Antioch, on the other hand, could not go up very high. One of the biggest fears, there were two major fears in the ancient world, according to Stark. One was fire that, you know, they didn't have modern conveniences like stoves and, and heaters and these kinds of things. And so a lot of times you had a clay pot on the floor and that's where you cooked your meal. They were always afraid of fire. And then on top of that, as these families would get up higher and higher in these, these structures, not going up more than, than maybe seven or eight stories, they would subdivide and subdivide and subdivide so that the upper stories of these, of these structures in Antioch would become so top-heavy that they would fall down on top of the people. The two big fears of being a city dweller in Antioch, that you would burn up or that it would be, you would be buried alive in some kind of a collapse. People were literally compressed in and on top of each other. Shoulder to shoulder, elbow to elbow. Statement number two, Antioch experienced the headaches, problems, and crises of a densely populated ancient city. Everything that happened in any other city in the Greco-Roman world was happening inside of, of Antioch. Just think about 117 people per acre without sanitation. Without modern-day sanitation like we have today. Sanitation was an issue in many Greco-Roman worlds. And the constant companion of sanitation are insects. And the constant companion of sanitation and insects is disease leading to epidemics. Stark writes that the Greco-Roman city was a pest hole of infectious disease. And as you know from your, your Western Civ classes in high school and in college, that these ancient cities experienced from time to time terrible epidemics that has destroyed large portions of the population. Stark writes that if you were living in Antioch or any of these other cities, chances were you were not going to grow up with all of your siblings and you would not grow up with both of your parents. One or both of your parents would be dead by the time you reached adulthood and probably half of your siblings as well. Why? Because of the disease. But also with the sanitation, there was a problem of crime. Crime was always present. People were moving to these large cities and, and, and they didn't have many times means and they didn't have jobs and their resources would deplete. And crime was a way that they would supplement whatever income that they had or whatever resources that they had. I can remember moving to Brasilia, Brazil in 1989. When we landed on the tarmac there in Brasilia, the capital of Brazil, to work as missionaries, there was a, a little city 
at the time. It was called a satellite city because it was just on the outskirts of the capital city. It was a place called Samambaya that by the time we arrived there in 1989, there was 15,000 people living there. In the six years that we lived in Brazil, the day that we got on that plane to come back to the United States, Samambaya, that little satellite city outside of Brasilia, had grown from 15,000 people to 250,000 people without any of the, the, the support infrastructure, not being able to create the jobs that were needed to support a city of 250,000 people. So what do you think happened in Samambaya and all of the cities surrounding Samambaya? Crime went out the roof. Not just uh, theft, but violent crime as well. One of the ancient Roman poets, a fellow by the name of Juvenal, in, in writing about how crime was such a problem in these ancient cities... He, he writes that to go out to supper without having made your will was to expose yourself to reproach of carelessness. Crime. And because the Greco-Roman cities had large influxes of newcomers to their cities, it's possible to say that these, these cities, like Antioch, were peopled by strangers. People being able to, to, to come into these cities in order to better their, their lives, or at least that's what they were thinking, moving away from family, moving away from village life, moving away from peasant life into the city. They were strangers to one another. And so relational isolation, that is loneliness, was an issue in Antioch as well as these other cities. And by the time that Rome seized Antioch, it is estimated that there were 18 different quarters, meaning in no way was Antioch a very homogenous city. There were eight, at least 18 different ethnic groups that were represented in quarters around that city, which meant that it was not homogenous, it was multi-ethnic. And because it was multi-ethnic, it meant that it was pluralistic. And if you're a missionary or if, if you're an anthropologist or you read National Geographic, you know what pluralism is. That's when a society, because of all of the multi-ethnicity of it, brings in all of its religion, all of its idols, all of its worldview, all of its value systems, like how do you raise children, technologies, cultural pride. It becomes a city that is not homogenous, but there's a pluralistic or plural way of understanding and living and interacting with people and, and trying to survive. And when you have that many groups together, each group kind of binding itself together because of, of, of at least there's that sameness and commonality within these ethnic quarters, what you have is each people group thinking that it's superior and that it's, it's elite. And that's the way you're supposed to do things, the way that they do it. And when these different groups would clash, there was always going to be urban volatility. I mean, the Roman cities of the ancient world were prone to, to violence. They were prone to, to riots. And not only was it between the ethnic groups that you would find inside of these cities, but it was because of other things that were going on, like the lack of bread or famines or these kinds of things, and the government was not doing what the people thought it was doing and supposed to be doing. And so the people having no political clout would do whatever any group in all of history has had to do when they don't have political influence or political power or political control, and that is to riot. And you'd go to these, ethnic, these, these quarters, these ethnic quarters, and you would find people you know, ready to go to, to war with each other and to fight each other at the drop of a hat. And the problems of the ancient world were just unbelievable when we think about what it means to live in the 21st century of a, of a superpower nation. The problems 
where sanitation and crime and relational isolation and multi-ethnic pluralistic thinking and urban volatility, and we've not even talked about mortality rates or famines or sieges or from, uh, from armies. I mean, the number of times that Antioch was taken in the ancient world was about 25 times. There were earthquakes that shook it to its core. There were a couple of times where it burned down. There were all kinds of natural disasters. And into this environment, into this kind of a city, the early Christians went in Acts 11. After the execution of Stephen by stoning, that's over in Acts chapter 7, the church is scattered out from Jerusalem. I mean, because of that persecution there's, uh, of Stephen and, and his lynching, there's a persecution in general that breaks out against the church, and everybody scatters out of Jerusalem except the apostles. And some of these land in Antioch, and while there they begin to share the gospel at the beginning with the Jews only, but then there were a group of fellows, a group of Christians who came from Cyprus and Cyrene, who began preaching the gospel to Greeks, in other words, to the Gentiles. Now, I find a lot of irony in that, especially in light of the 21st century church. No one told these people when they left Jerusalem and go to Antioch that they were supposed to preach. Nobody told them. Nobody gave them permission to do that. They somehow grasped the idea that everybody that was in that church in Jerusalem that had been born again, who had been brought into the body of Christ, that were part of the church, who had been saved by the gospel and transformed by the gospel, had the responsibility to witness that gospel wherever they went. They didn't think that evangelism was something that the professional clergy was supposed to take care of. One of the things that's so important for us as a church to remember, not just today, and especially in light of the past, but as we look towards the future, is that Barry Newton is not our evangelism guy. Barry's not the evangelism guy. Barry's the guy that helps organize evangelism. He trains people to do evangelism. But he's not the go-to evangelism guy. Our church is the body of Christ, which makes our church the go-to people of the gospel. And then on top of that, the second piece of irony is no one told them to preach to the Gentiles. But they did. There was just something that took place in Antioch that caused these people not just to preach it to the, Greek, to, to, to the Jews, but also to preach it to the Gentiles, to the Greeks. And here's the result, verse 21. The Lord's hand was with them. Why? Because they had chose to go not only to Antioch to escape persecution, but to take the gospel with them. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. A great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Well, the church in Jerusalem, as you know, hears about this. They send Barnabas off to Antioch to check things out. Barnabas is kind of their ambassador of goodwill. The, son Bar the name Barnabas means what? Son of encouragement. And that's the kind of guy that he is. And so he goes to Antioch and he sees what's happening there. He checks things out and he rejoices. Why does he rejoice, church? Because he sees how the grace of God and the gospel of God is impacting people's lives. And he sees the evidence of God's grace everywhere in the church. And then we read this in verse 24. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. This church is not just surviving. This church is not just holding its own. This church is not just keeping its head above water and just trying to maintain itself. This church is thriving in a city like Antioch with 18 ethnic quarters, with crime and sanitation and, and relational isolation and the vulnerability of, of women and all of these things happening in the city. This church is thriving. And because Barnabas sees that, he knows, you know what? They need more than just me as a leader. They need another kind of a leader. So he goes and he gets Paul 
I mean, can you imagine the vastness of the issues that had to be addressed as people from all over the known world? That pluralistic society that they're, they're creating in Antioch with all the different ways and values and worldviews of, of raising children and, and being married and all of that. All of the different issues that had to be addressed as people from all over the known world streamed into this one church. And peace and harmony, if you're talking about this kind of ethnic difference, is not going to come overnight. So Paul is brought to Antioch by Barnabas. Barnabas fetches Saul, and the Bible says in verse 26 that they taught considerable numbers. And with time and with effort and the hand of the Lord being upon them, what happened? People began to figure it out. They began to figure out what it meant to be a church. All these ethnic groups coming together to become one body. And it wasn't just in Antioch. It wasn't just in Antioch. You think about Ephesus. Paul writes to the church in Ephesus that made up this church is made up of so many different kinds of people and different ways of thinking that he has to write them a special letter to help bring this church together and to unify it. He writes in chapter 2, he himself, speaking of Christ, is our peace who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their what? hostility. Paul would write to the church in Philippi and say, oh, contending with one mind, one, one person, one body for the gospel. The gospel was the transforming power of that natural human hostility and racism and bias and prejudice into peace and harmony among different ethnic groups. And that's why Paul always had a practical portion about how to live together, a practical theology about how to live together, how to be a Christian inside of the church, how to fellowship with one another. He always had that section toward the end of his letters. He was always trying to help the church made up of these kinds of cities and these kinds of dimensions and dynamics to understand how to live together. And that's also one of the reasons. When you think about the reasons that Paul would disfellowship somebody from the church or would say that somebody needed to be excluded from the fellowship, it was because of sexual immorality or it was because they were being divisive. They were fragmenting and tearing up the body of Christ. And then one day back in Antioch, one of them by the name of Agabus stands up and through the Spirit of God predicts a great famine throughout the entire world. And by the time this happens, by, by the time that Agabus gets up and talks about this famine, by now the church in Antioch has really and truly and authentically and genuinely grown in its ability to love people wherever they're from. And so they decide to sacrifice of their means and to send aid back to Judea to their Jewish brothers and sisters who are suffering in the famine. And then a couple of chapters later, in chapter 13, verse 1, you read about the leadership of the church in the city of Antioch made up of all kinds of men from different kinds of, of backgrounds. You have Barnabas, who is a Cypriot. You have Simeon, who, who is, has an African uh, descent in his name. You have Lucius of Cyrene, who is from Libya. You have Menaean, who grew up in, in royalty and probably with uh, some, some influence and some some, uh, some affluence because he, he, was, he, was, he grew up with Herod the Tetrarch. And then you have Saul and Paul, same guy, who grew up in Tarsus. And all of them are different. 
And all of them have come from different places around the world, but they've all landed in Antioch with the Gospel, all transformed by the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. And it's out of a city, out of a church, in a city like Antioch, with its crowded living conditions and sanitation problems and disease and crime and relational isolation and multi-ethnicity and pluralism and urban volatility and all of its different ethnic quarters, that the Holy Spirit sends out the first missionary team of Paul and Barnabas to begin going into all of the cities of the known world preaching the gospel. And beginning at that point, by the time you get to the third century, the world, the known world, is Christian. At the end of one of the, the latter chapters in Ronnie Stark's book, he writes, Christianity revitalized life in Greco-Roman cities by providing new norms and new kinds of social relationship able to cope with many urgent urban problems. To cities filled with the homeless and impoverished, Christianity offered charity as well as hope. To cities filled with newcomers and strangers, Christianity offered an immediate basis for attachments. To cities filled with orphans and widows, Christianity provided a new and expanded sense of family. To cities torn by violent ethnic strife, Christianity offered a new basis for social solidarity. And to cities faced with epidemics and fires and earthquakes, Christianity offered effective nursing services. No wonder the early Christian missionaries were so warmly received in this city. For what they brought was not simply an urban movement, but a new culture but a new culture capable of making life in Greco-Roman cities more tolerable. A new culture is what they brought into these cities. There was a word for these people who brought a new culture to Antioch. The disciples were first called what in Antioch? Christians. There was a word for these people who brought a new culture to Antioch that transformed that city and out of Antioch transformed other Greco-Roman cities in the ancient world. The name was Christian. It's the same word for the people of God in San Antonio who bring the kingdom culture of God to San Antonio. When, when you think back over the last six decades of ministry in this city, you see a great legacy. You see a great heritage of ministry to people. How many of you were here during the time of the bus ministry? Remember all of those buses and all of those kids that were brought in. Do you know that one of the kids that was brought in uh, and, and converted at this church is now uh, a, a, a school superintendent here in Texas over on the west end of the state? The care cottage, a house, was, was, was transformed uh, from, from a parsonage into the care cottage in order to, to give food and clothing to people who, who needed it free of charge. There were neighbor days. There was holiday harvest. We're, now we're serving 550 families on holiday harvest with, with food and with, with toys for their children and, and clothing if they needed it. There's the back-to-school backpack drive. There's work camp. Do you know that when work camp began in 1998, we started with eight houses. By 2014, 120 houses have been painted in this town. 
the radio spot that, that is heard all over South Texas, the Nigerian Christian Hospital, now the Christian Hospital in Swaziland, sending children to camp, the Montreal campaign, sending Bibles into the former Soviet Union through Eastern European missions, missionaries all over uh, the, the world, uh, Mexico, Brazil, Honduras, Japan, Chile, San Diego, thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars sent all over the world in disaster relief, reading camp for the kids in this neighborhood. I mean, I can't name all of the things that, that this church has been involved in over the last 60 years, but in 60 years, there has been an investment in the community and an investment in the city and, and, and people. And as we look back at this legacy, it is the stepping off place that propels us into the future. Why? Because God is not the God of the dead, but of the living, which means that where God is... Things are alive and not dead. And if God is in this place and continues to be with this church family, our best years are not behind us. Our best years are ahead of us. And if God's hand is with this church, there are still lots of things to do. So what does our future look like? I don't have a clue. <laughs> but when I think about Antioch, I want to pray. I want to pray that our good works in the coming day shine in such a way that they cast even longer shadows in this city. I want to pray that we see ourselves bringing a new culture to the seventh largest city in America and the second largest city in Texas. That the Christians at MacArthur Park will be known on the military bases, in the hospitals, in the school districts, on the campuses, and in the companies as people who care about God regardless of color, social status, finances, or education. That God use a church like Mac to show what it means to be a disciple of Jesus in a city that is as diverse as San Antonio. That Mac be a place where people can figure out, they have time and instruction to figure out what it means to live as a disciple of God, which means to find that joy, to find that peace as they live every day as a child of God. I pray that at the end of time that we will not be ashamed when the book of what could have been is opened and laid before us in heaven. Uh, some time back, I, I don't know if it was a couple of years ago or a year ago or what, but I remember Rich, Rick Ashley, who was the preacher, is the preacher for the Hills Church in Fort Worth, telling a story about, uh, about their relationship with the community. And I sent him an email this week. He, he writes back, here's the story. A number of years ago, we adopted an underprivileged school not far from us. We bought school supplies, sent tutors through parties for teachers, sent food home with kids for the weekend, etc. The police chief, the police chief later showed me a map charting domestic violence, violence in different regions of the North Richland Hills area of the Metroplex. The only region that saw a decline was around our school, and he attributed this to our presence there. So, and he finishes, so while Christians should thank local police for making the community safer, it's pretty cool when the police thank local Christians for doing the same. I am so thankful for the heritage of this church. Sixty years. We are transformers in this community because we have been transformed. We are the embodiment of the gospel. Why? 
Because one day the greatest missionary of all left his home and traveled an infinite distance to be born in a manger in Bethlehem. And he entered into our disease and into our crime-ridden, lonely, desperate, fallen lives. And he didn't just sacrifice his home. What he sacrificed was his life in order that we might find true life, abundant life, transformed life by the Gospel of Jesus of Nazareth. And as that kind of people whose culture is new on the inside, we go out into whatever culture we find bringing that new culture on the inside, the kingdom culture of God, and transforming people's lives and culture wherever we go and being a blessing, a blessing, a blessing of God to whoever we meet. I think it's time for us to praise God. We're going to have some of our shepherds down here at the front. If there, if there are ways that we can minister to you this morning, we want you to come down and talk to these shepherds as we praise God for the heritage He's given us and the future that lies before us. Let's stand and praise Him together. I'm pressing on the up.